Hey there, and welcome to the UX Growth Podcast, sponsored by Bubble, the platform that empowers you to build web applications with no coding required. This is your go-to spot to dive deep into all things UX design. Here, we tackle the questions you've got about navigating the UX field and share a thing or two to help you grow in your UX journey. Each episode is all about making the tough stuff feel doable and inspiring, you to take the next step in your career. Now, let's jump right into today's chat. Hi, this is the UX Growth Podcast, a podcast that helps people learn and grow in UX design industry. I'm your host, Nick Mann. I'm here with a new guest of season three, Scott Kuby, author, writing for designers, and Director of Content Career Accelerator. Thank you, Scott, for being here. I'm excited to learn more about your journey and your experiences. Thanks, Nick. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Yeah, so I see that you had a, a wealth of experience across different roles in UX. So I want to know, how has your journey through these roles shaped your approach to UX writing and strategy? Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny if I, I've, I do a lot of career coaching these days. And so my, I have found that my journey and the roles that I've gone through, it's almost backwards or upside down from how a lot of folks in this space have moved through their careers. So for me, I was lucky enough to get to start many, many years ago, 12, 13 years ago now, doing interface writing, what we now call UX writing commonly, right out of the gate. So I got connected with some folks in my uh, city that I was living in, in an app startup, and I was writing copy and doing some kind of marketing work and similar sorts of things for um, what at the time was the pretty new app store, this little thing that Apple had launched some many moons ago. And so lots of folks had app ideas. We were building some of our own. This was sort of the zeitgeist at the time as companies were talking about how to go mobile or how to appify their business. And so I really started at the micro or micro copy level, really focused on that and building what were, I think, pretty high quality, but in, in the context of like a modern SaaS application with multiple endpoints and so on, we're pretty straightforward and simple apps, you know, 10, 15, 20 screens, maybe tops. So I really cut my teeth there, had a very voice-driven, interface copy-driven, experience-driven lens on content, and ended up moving through a few roles as the content strategy discipline was getting cemented. I had nothing to do with that, but but other great folks were out there Talking about content strategy, the content strategy consortium came together at, a, at the Information Architecture Summit. Some books, some articles came together. And so I started reading about it and ended up sort of advocating for, in my next role, content strategy being part of it. And I've, I've sort of worked outwards from there to doing more digital strategy or content strategy in an agency setting, I was lucky enough to work at Brain Traffic for a number of years, which is one of the top content strategy agencies in, in the world, I would say. And I did a lot. I was really, it's a form, the way we practice content strategy at Brain Traffic, it's, it's effectively a form of management consulting. So you're sort of working with executives. You're sitting around with folks who are, you know, someone who owns the IT, someone who owns the marketing, someone who owns the product. And 
talking about the big picture of their digital footprint, all the websites that they have, all of the technology that powers their stack. How do we orchestrate some sort of vision or voice or, or whatever it might be across that experience? So I started super, super small, and it's gone really, really big. I think a lot of folks go the other way, where maybe they're sort of their organization's content person. So they're sort of doing everything. And over time, they're like, you know, I want to be more tactical. I want to do more writing. I want to focus on the experience and maybe find themselves gravitating toward what we now think of as UX writing roles. So it's it's been a it's been a wild ride. Yeah, no, it's like from how we go through our lives, like from these transition of these roles too. I think that's always really incredible from like the UX field because most people just don't go into UX field right out the gate. And, you know, so many people just fall into it. It's incredible from, you know, design to UX leadership. So like, and now like you're an author. So I want to know, how do you think, think the writing for UX differs from traditional design work? I think that is a really interesting question, right? How does the UX writing differ from the UX design? A way of understanding that question is to ask ourselves, how does UX writing or design writing is the kind of catch-all that I like to use. How does design writing differ from other forms of writing? So a lot of the, a lot of folks with a copywriting or writing background, maybe it's from public relations, maybe it's from marketing, maybe it's from sales and advertising. Maybe it's journalism, long form writing of some sort. And there, there's sort of an attitude and a mentality there that is the writing itself is the product. If you write a newspaper article, that's kind of meant to be consumed as its own thing. If you do a magazine mm -hmm. feature, similarly, a book, similarly. But with UX writing, the writing, it's really inextricable from the design. Words are just a design material that a UX writer or content designer is also a common term these days. It doesn't always mean the same thing, but at a tech company, content designer and UX writer are pretty interchangeable. That's a person who's focused on words as a design material. And the way I, I often explain it to folks is that it is a UX design specialization of a sort in the same way that you might have someone on your team or collaborate with someone who has accessibility as one of their specializations, or a traditional designer where color or typography is their mm -hmm. deep area of expertise. I think with a UX writer or a content designer, you're going to find that words, yes, and on top of words, meaning. So the meaning of words and the messages that those words convey, and sort of thinking about how to craft that across an experience. So it's like design, but it's not. It's like writing, but it's not. And I think that complex apps and experiences, that's why there's room for someone to specialize on that. Yeah, I can agree with the amount of information that is we convey and also like context. I think that's the most important thing that I've learned in any kind of UX writing that I've been doing. So, uh, yeah, sometimes the way that I explain this too is, is UX writing and content design in particular, I like to define as a user-centered way of writing. So a lot of writing uh, is about self-expression. That's kind of what we learn in schools through like personal essays and that sort of thing. Or it's about transmitting information. So if you do a book report or you write a research paper about something, you're trying to transmit information. But the the interface writing and the experience writing is, is much more about it being a part of a larger thing 
and facilitating an experience, right? You're writing words mm-hmm. for use, you know, to grossly oversimplify. If the door says push, but it's really a pull, you're going to have a bad time. Mm. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, those kinds of labels and word choices, if it says exit, but it was supposed to say emergency exit, now you're also having a bad day. So, you know, specificity, words, meaning, that kind of thing, I think is is the ouvroir of, of the UX writer most of the time. Yeah, I think those are some powerful examples because I think we've all been there. <laughs> the problem of some poor UX writing there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when it's bad, it's really bad, right? And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, users are... We're users, right? Everyone's a user. A user is a person. They're trying to get something done. And I think this is a a mindset that the good UX writers that I've worked with and good UX designers certainly as well have the mindset that I'm not here to impress you with my vocabulary. I am not here to put pop or zest or brand voice into the experience, although maybe I do on purpose occasionally. But really what I am doing is I'm trying to make this thing easy to use. And that is kind of the uh, focus of UX writing, but it's also really one of the challenges of being a UX writer and navigating your career is that if you're doing your job really well, it seems like what you've done is incredibly obvious and simple. That means that you've done a really good job, but it can also mean that people don't necessarily appreciate all of the work that went into making it so quote unquote obvious and simple and intuitive and all of these words we like to use to diminish the impact of designers and certainly of writers. Yeah, I know. I totally understand how uh, so many people overestimate the simplicity that it requires to be able to make something so simple and easily understood from as many people as possible. It reminds me, for fun, I wrote a children's book. And you would think that, oh, that's a super easy from a silly adventure. It's using simple sentences and words. You got to use about 50 of them. But you got to make it into a coherent way that any child can understand in a way that doesn't get convoluted or doesn't get boring. And that's when I realized, wow, writing this simple is a lot harder than it looks. Yeah, absolutely. It's so funny that you mentioned that, Nick, because children's book is the metaphor I use with coaching clients on how to think about your portfolio, actually. So the, especially for the engagement part you talk about of like people not getting bored, being able to follow through. I see so many case studies and portfolio examples that are just walls of text, so much explanation. And I I think a, a children's book is a really nice metaphor for it, where for one thing, I should be able to hold it up in front of the class and they should be able to read the words on it back to me from 10, 15, 20 feet away, right? We don't want lots and lots of words. We want a compelling image. We want a little bit of text, text that just gets the idea across and and serves as a vehicle to tell a story with. And, And I think portfolios should absolutely be the same way. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like we get bogged down and all the weeds of all the details. And man, I'm so guilty of that too when I was starting in my UX portfolio of posting so many words, trying to put in so much data. I think there's a lot of like, I just want to showcase like, here's everything I can do. When realizing that 
when you look at it, like in the grand scope of people are reading multiple of these and you only have so much time, like you got to understand like the context and it's kind of feels very meta of we got to look at the user of like the hiring manager's point of view of how they see our portfolio and how we are as, you know, UX designers are looking about for the process of how they are processing this information in a way to make a proper decision. And like a lot of that, like this goes in the key part of UX writing. So it's like when you're, you consider yourself like a, like a UX designer, we're also doing UX writing in our portfolio, whether we like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. I try to be very inclusive about the idea of UX writing. I think it's really wonderful if a company has the headcount and the resourcing and the operational sophistication to hire dedicated and specialized UX writers or content designers, and similarly for UX researchers and information architects and all the other wonderful specializations. But that's very often not the case. And a lot of the projects that I've worked on, every content designer on earth can tell you this. We, all, we When we're at the hotel bar and it's just the content designers or the UX writers at the conference, and we're all talking, one of the first things that comes up is ratio. That's how you get to know other content designers. What's your ratio? Well, at our organization, it's one to four, one writer to four designers. One to four. Wow, you're so lucky. Mine's one to 16. 16, <laughs> I'm, it's just me and we have 200 designers. So, you know, there's whatever that ratio is, that one person, whether they're supporting four folks, 16, God forbid, 20, 40, 100, they can't actually literally do all of the writing. They can't write and choose every word. So I think in that respect, UX writing, yeah, it's a writing job, but that that's what starts to get us very quickly into what I think of as content strategy and content operations. How do I scale my impact? How do I give people self-service tools to do some of the writing on their own or to, to encourage or enable designers to give each other feedback on the writing or to know when it's the best time to come to me and ask for guidance and support? So... This is one of the challenges we have now in the the very broad catch-all field that I tend to call UX content. So all the roles, all the different types. We are doing a lot of embedding UX writers on product teams. Awesome. Glad to see it. Please hire juniors. <laughs> you know, let's get some fresh blood in there. But you'll find, you know, if you have 10, 15, 20 product teams and you hire 10, 15, 20 content designers, UX writers to support those teams, what infrastructure do you have for those folks to effectively collaborate, to align on standards, to start to, if you don't have one, build and use a voice architecture, a style guide? Ideally, a content design system or adding content considerations to a traditional, quote unquote, UX design system. That's what a lot of companies are not hiring for right now. And I think it is to their detriment. And I think it is causing a lot of content people to look for greener pastures and find companies who get it where they don't have to fight for that kind of support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of designers just need to consider about when they are working in a company and being able to know how are they feeling 
empowered to do their job as well as possible. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you've been involved in a lot of teaching and mentoring. So I'm curious to know what advice would you give to UX professionals specializing in UX writing? Hmm. I think if someone is just starting out with that kind of assignment, right? So like role articulation is really big. Maybe you're a UX designer and you've watched one of my talks or taken one of my workshops. And so you have learned already how important it is to assign someone the role of writer, capital W. I'm kind of using it in a formal way in this sense. This is my top tip to product design teams is assign that role. And now you have an opportunity to think about or talk about with your team, what does it mean that I am the writer? Do we want that to mean that the designer now is just going to put more ipsum placeholder copy or insert text here? Or if we're working lo-fi and they're sketching, are they going to put in squiggly lines, right? <laughs> Instead of words, mm -hmm. what is that process going to look like? Pro tip, you don't want the words to come after. You want them to come together. So now you get to talk about, well, what is it going to be like in our process? What will change? What conversations will happen when, if we are taking the words seriously now, finally? And that, what is really cool about it, and I think if you wanted to get started on the right foot, maybe build something that is useful for your portfolio to be able to speak to a content design or UX writing specialization, is look for some sort of technique that lets you do content-first design. So a, a really common example would be designing with dialogue. This is something that I teach in my UX writing course for the School of Visual Arts. And it's it's hard, especially now today with so many chatbots and AI to, to get the students to understand exactly what I mean by that. But I, I try and pull it back to thinking about what if this was a play and there's two actors in it and one is your app and one is the user. What would that conversation look like? You can start designing there. If you write out that whole conversation, you are going to be light years ahead of most design teams at that point. You'll have thought about how to communicate it. You'll have thought about how to sequence it. You'll have identified some important words or phrases that you want to be really particular about in your experience. So designing with dialogue is one way to do it. Or sometimes I'm just the writer and what I'm doing is leading design. I'm like, I'm going to run the workshop where we do sketching and, and work through something like that. But find being very intentional about how you involve yourself in the process, because I can promise you what never happens is other people figuring that out for you. No one's going to hand you the process of how to be the UX writer or the content designer, because if they knew how to do it, they'd be doing it already and they don't know how to do it. And, and that's where you can come in. So unfortunately, in your first few opportunities, you're going to be having to figure out that process alongside actually doing what maybe is some new work. Oh my gosh. Yeah, actually, I kind of blew my mind about how we interact with apps and like, wow, I actually never thought yeah. of that. I really, it's, this is a little dorky or wonky, I admit, but, but the way that I style my UX writing teaching is I invite people to think about automaton, which is 
the very first ones, it, like the sort of dictionary definition of automaton is a robot made in the image of a human being. So they had these sort of old timey, think like Victorian or steampunk, right? You've got all these mm-hmm. gears and mechanisms, and maybe you'd make some sort of automaton that like looks like it's playing the piano or acts like it's playing tennis. Yeah, and, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So I think in design, that's ultimately what we're doing, right? So if you have a finance app, let's say you're a consumer finance company, that's like a huge industry now. I know a lot of folks that are working in some sort of B2C consumer finance, whether that's like, you know, breaking down payments, you know, big purchase into payments like a firm or whether it's doing your own accounting like Mint, lots of people are in that space. So Mm -hmm. we've got online finance, maybe you've got some kind of banking or savings account app. What did we used to do before we had technology? Well, you had to go into an office and then you had to sit down at a desk and you talk to a banker and you had a conversation about what are you, what are you looking for today? What do you need? This is what I need. This is, these are my concerns. These are my questions. Everything that we're doing, almost everything that we're doing. I I mean, there are some novel experiences that are fully like immersive in AI and they're not really, you know, it's some new paradigm. But most of them are not new paradigms. They are conversations in the form of software. And starting with the conversation, thinking about conversational design is what some practitioners call it. I don't use that too much because it gets confusing because people think you mean chatbots. And I really don't mean chatbots and I don't mean AI. I mean, just as a mental exercise, thinking about what kind of conversation are you designing with your experience? Yeah, I know a pretty well process of... Like with the rise of like AI and machine learning, it's like, it feels like it's a completely new field, but really the basics of UX can always be applied. I think that's always what, oh, especially with got Apple's augmented reality headset coming. It's just for the whole process. It's just, it, it feels so exciting and new, but at the same time, a lot of the processes of how we use with interaction are already been there. Yeah. And there's, yeah, exactly. There's so much stuff you can draw from. I I think that people forget sometimes or conflate sometimes like chat, chat is not really a technology. It's a modality. Like it's a way of interacting with either a human agent or a digital agent. And that has certain affordances, a lot fewer affordances than something that has a bunch of buttons on it or what have you, the affordance is language. So this is how I'm interacting with this thing. Now you move to a digital device. I won't even name any because I don't want to accidentally trigger someone's assistant. But you know, you have some sort of little pod or tube that sits in your kitchen and you ask it to convert cups to ounces or what have you. You know, now you have even fewer affordances because it's just voice and you don't even get to see the text, right? My iPhone assistant that I speak to is always telling me, oh, I can show you that on your iPhone. I'm like, I don't want that. Just say it to me. That's why I asked you with my voice. So chat being a modality, text being a modality, websites being a modality, and then, okay, now what technology are we giving access to behind that modality? Generative AI that can write things or generate images or what have you is behind it. So What I think is going to be very interesting over time is how pervasive is the chat modality going to be? Is this what people are building because it's easy? Now, is this what people are building because 
so much of the output of generative AI tools is text that it's just easier to sort of talk at the thing and it gets to use our text as an input. I think some brands and, and apps are experimenting with, you know, making it a little more structured and giving people, you know, we might come all the way back around and decide, you know what we need? We need some buttons and we need some forms and we need some information architecture and structure to help people understand how to use this thing. But it's so it's, it's fun. And I, I think there's a lot of AI is kind of scary for a lot of UX writing folks because it's now so easy to generate walls and walls of text. But I, I think the skills behind that of words as a design material, meaning, message, all those kinds of things, they're going to be more important in the future, not less. Yeah, I I view it as the, the user really has to know what they want. And most times they don't, or they would already be knowing what they're doing. So I think that's always yeah. kind of the, the thing that we tend to overlook well, yeah, as much as you know, you know, as much as it's a powerful tool, there's still so much more contextual things that go on that not everyone is always this kind of know off the top of their head. Yeah. And what content people end up working on a lot is something that I think a lot of product teams forget even exist. And I say this with love because I, I love product, I love my product design peers and UX designers. But what most product teams end up working on, especially for like a big app with lots of distinct features and teams, they are primarily addressing task-based journeys. Mm -hmm. So the user has, to your point, they have something they need to accomplish. Maybe they can't quite articulate it. Maybe they don't totally know what it is, but there's some, like, they don't want the thing. They don't want to use your app. They want, no one really wants to work, right? Like we just want the thing to be over with and we want success in our jobs and we want to be rich and beautiful and whatever. So there's something we have to get done and your app's going to help us get that done. So most product teams are focused on those kind of task-based journeys. We want somebody to be able to schedule this automatically. We want somebody to be able to integrate this with Google Drive, whatever, whatever. What a lot of content people are focused on is the other often much larger bucket of journeys, which are information-seeking journeys. Mm -hmm. So we've sort of, I think a lot of organizations and when I'm, when I put on my strategy hat and I'm doing digital strategy or content strategy consulting with someone, I'm helping them. I'm often reminding teams that the buyer's journey is not the only journey, or if that's really what you want to focus on and uses your lens, that awareness and discovery phase information seeking, like that comes up over and over again. There's always something that people need to figure out and learn and consider to be even be able to consider and contemplate spending any money with you or making use of the new feature that you just had your product team build on, spend so much time building out. How is someone supposed to know that that feature exists? What is your mm -hmm. rollout strategy for that? What's your go-to-market plan around the new feature? Those are the things that and, and this is not a critique, but just a consideration for design leaders, customer experience leaders to make. Who do we have focusing on the orchestration between all the different facets of our operations to make, just for instance, to make a feature launch successful? It's often not enough to build it. You can build it and they won't come because they don't even know it's there or they don't even know, to your point from earlier, Nick, they might not even know that that's something that they would want to do. Yeah. 
And so filling that in is, is often the content person's role. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That kind of leads to the next challenge. I would imagine a lot of UX writers have when they're work, when they're collaborating with so many other designers, developers, product managers, what's your approach to ensuring a seamless collaboration process? Mm -hmm. Well, if, I think if I could nail a seamless collaboration process, I would be a very wealthy man. There, <laughs> there's always going to be bumps in the road. I can tell you my main approach and something that has served me well in my roles is, and I, I had to learn this the hard way, is to, I, I call it writing the process, R-I-D-I-N-G. So figure out how that product team, those designers, developers, managers, business analysts, what have you, how are they already working? What are they already looking at? If design ideation seems to happen in Figma, and I want someone to consider some design ideas that I have, I'm going to put them in Figma. Mm -hmm. If we tend to align on the vision for the new feature through a deck, right? Some sort of presentation we make that we use as part of a road show to take around to other executives and get buy-in. I'll tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to put my content considerations into the deck. Is there a product brief? You can guess <laughs> I'm adding a section on content considerations to that product brief. So looking at what people are already doing and often what you are, are doing is the content person, the writer is adding just one more layer to it, which is all the content considerations. So, you know, very typical one-on-one -on -one kind of advice, go into the Figma, make a copy exploration section, right? So now you, maybe it's on the same canvas, probably not. It's probably on its own page and you're, you're putting all of your explorations there and you're sort of directing attention to it when you need to. If it is for a big content migration, this is the kind of thing content people work on a lot. You're working with marketing teams, product managers. They're probably making some sort of document. We often call them page tables. So, you know, just a thing that describes each of the pages for the new website. I'll go in and add user-centered or audience-focused questions as a layer within that document. So why did someone come to this page? What are they hoping to accomplish? What are their top three questions when they're on this page? So anything that you really want to do, I think if you can find a way to get it in front of someone in a familiar way, is really going to serve you well. Where a lot of content strategists struggle and where I have struggled in the past in my career is to make people feel like what you are doing is a whole bunch of other work and other crap that they have to pay attention to <laughs> now. So if you're making yeah. lots of other documents and the content strategy questions guide, and like, you know, if there's now 15 more links in the project wiki because of the content work that you're doing, I think you're doing it wrong. You don't mm -hmm. want to add links to the resources. You want to add content information to the existing resources. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's always the issue of the fact that we as UX people are always have to be so team based and all of our problems usually like circumvent from that because it feels very rare that we can ever achieve something just by ourselves. Yeah. And I think with with let's think very simple. Let's say that, that it's a writer and a designer and a developer. This is how I got my start, right? Just the three of us, mm -hmm. writer, designer, developer. When you're doing the sign-up process for an app, the app requires an account. You got four or five screens, username, password, what have you. 
asking people to create that account. Well, already where a lot of teams miss the boat, I mean, I've, I've walked into products with 10, 15 year histories and no one has touched the onboarding emails since the beginning. Like they're still ugly oh. and, plain text and it's like a missed opportunity, right? So like if you reset your password, it's some like honestly very like not encouraging looking thing that comes from some automated, you know, Nginx automated, whatever, whatever. And it's like, boy, oh boy, like we didn't really make a complete picture of this journey at the start. So that kind of collaboration, I think, you know, even if you don't get to do all of the writing, I think like, think about those ratios I mentioned earlier, one to four, one to 16. Sometimes what I'm doing, if I'm supporting a lot of designers is I just go into designs in progress and I say, awesome, looking so good, everyone. Very excited about this. Here are six or seven other moments or touch points in this journey that are going to happen by virtue of what you are building in Figma. Because the Figma is the design specification for the thing in the app. But I want you all to remember, this is going to trigger two automated emails. This is going to trigger a notification through the notification center in the app. There's going to be a push notification that happens now when the new feature is live, whatever, whatever, whatever. And just making sure that that stuff is in the canvas so that there's you know, at least a, a snowball's chance of that kind of stuff getting considered at the same time. Very often what happens is we're like, there's a rush to launch. We didn't think about that. We didn't explore the edges of the problem. And we focused on what the designers need to do, what the developers need to do. No one asked any content questions. Now, oops, <laughs> we have a content emergency. Who's going to write the update message? Who's going to write the, the onboarding email? Oh my gosh, do we have to update the support documents around this? It, it, the, the product is a much bigger picture than the thing that a product team is assigned to, which is... Maybe it's just a problem with the name. Maybe we shouldn't call them product teams. I think feature team tends to make a lot more sense to me, but people don't want to be feature managers. They want to be product managers. I get that. You, you know, it sounds cooler mm -hmm. on the resume, but most product teams are really feature teams and they're managing a particular feature and they're not looking at the whole product as a user experiences it. And not the content people are the only people who think that way. I know plenty of designers who are frustrated with that as well. Yeah. But to be the content person, you kind of have to make that your problem. A developer maybe can pretend to ignore it. A designer maybe can pretend to ignore it. Um, if you ignore it as a content person, it becomes that content emergency. Well, whose problem is that going to be? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be your problem. So you have to bring it up earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a common problem amongst the, the entire industry of identifying like our titles versus what we do in a way that everyone can understand. And it feels like every company has their slight difference as well as their own definition of what UX is. Yeah, this is the this is my record with the deepest grooves is is the rant I go on about the difference between job titles and roles, right? And a very common deliverable for a content strategist. So someone who's coming in and like, let's start to be more sophisticated about how we handle content. That person is almost certainly going to make some sort of like role and responsibility matrix because there's a bunch of content stuff that's supposed to happen. It's not happening. It's not in anyone's job description. And it's not because people are lazy and it's not because we don't care about it. It's just hasn't, we haven't set up that infrastructure yet. So come in, what needs to happen? Let's give those roles titles. Let's assign those roles to people or to positions 
with job titles associated, now we got a chance to keep things going. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's a very powerful moment. So as we're drawing close to this episode, what's this best way to support what you're doing, Scott? Yeah, thanks for asking. So something I'm very excited about and expect to be working on, I'd love to make it my main thing that I am working on is a program and community called Content Career Accelerator. It is a sort of a support network and also a learning community for people who are dealing with all the kinds of issues that we talked about on this episode. So you can find that very easily on my website. It's just my last name.co. So kubi.co is my site. And if you go there, click around, maybe sign up for a workshop, maybe join an info session about the Career Accelerator, or reach out to me on LinkedIn. Just getting questions from people about content stuff helps me a lot because now I know more what to write about what to make courses about, how to keep sort of spreading the gospel on content design and UX writing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And all links of where you can support Scott and his website as well as social media. So you can check out what he's doing and learn more about UX writing. So any closing words you'd like our audience to know about? I think the main thing for someone interested in growing as a UX practitioner and professional, even if you like, it's totally fine. If you don't want to be a UX writer, if you don't want to be a content designer, maybe you feel uncomfortable with writing. That's okay. I I feel pretty uncomfortable with designing. I I don't want to be doing the layout and the interface design. Um, But just remember that words are one of your design materials. And it's, it's a, a, mechanism, it's a lever, it's a tool in your belt, something that you can manipulate to shape the experience in a positive way. So take the words seriously is my advice. And if you don't feel equipped to handle those words on your own, find somebody to help. Yeah. Powerful to know. And the fact that I realizing through my whole UX career, even how I got into it, realizing that it's feels daunting doing it by yourself. And there's so many people who are willing to help you. And a lot of times you just ask. It's so, a, you know, you don't, you don't really have anything to lose just by asking too. So yeah, I think, and sometimes, yeah. yeah, especially with words, I, I think that if, if you don't have a writer on the team, you need to make it a team effort. Ask people, get feedback. Do do a lot of hallway testing. You know, I've there's plenty of UX writers that ask their dog or their significant other or someone in the coffee shop. You know, does this make any sense to you at all? And and a little of that can go a long way. So yeah, you got to ask. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott, for being here. Thanks for having me, Nick. This was really fun. Yes, please do support our guests. And until then, you just listen to the UX Grow podcast. I'm your host, Nick Mann. Thank you for listening. That concludes another episode of the UX Growth Podcast. We appreciate your time with us today. If you found value in this discussion, we invite you to follow us on your preferred podcast platform or to connect with the host on LinkedIn. Before we part ways, we'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Bubble. If you're looking to create web applications effortlessly, Bubble's no-code platform is your gateway. Build your projects with intuitive drag-and-drop actions, making the complex seem simple. And the best part? You can kickstart your app development journey without any coding expertise. 
To support the show, we encourage you to visit our sponsors link, which can be found along with other links in the show notes. Until our next episode, continue your exploration, learning, and growth in the UX design field.